0: Well, good morning. My name is Jeff, and I'm one of the shepherds here. And I'm right off the bat, I'm going to ask you if you could just bow your heads and well, uh, go into prayer one more time. Lord, I just ask for a clear sense of your presence this morning, that as we open up your word, that it would be you speaking to us, that we would be reminded of who you are in our life and the gift that you uh, give us daily just by simply being with us, walking with us, and drawing near to us. And Lord, we're grateful for this passage in the story of Joseph's life. And Lord, we just ask that you would open our hearts to be sensitive to your spirit and what you would have us to learn today. We ask these things in your name, amen. Well, um, this is the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. It's just, it's the most natural Mother's Day story we could find. Um <laughs> Obviously, it's written all throughout it. I need to let you know that there has been some work done by archaeologists where they have gone to Egypt and have actually discovered some of the stuff that belonged to Potiphar and that belonged to Potiphar's wife. And as they've researched that, they've been able to determine that the reason why Potiphar's wife turned out the way she did was because she didn't have a mother. That is a joke. I'm just kidding. Um, it's not true. Some of you are writing that down and um, no, uh, sorry. I was just trying to make some tie here uh, in the regard. What we're going to do is we're going to jump into this this morning. Um, we're, we're coming back into Genesis again and this Genesis story As we do it, again, our point of going through Genesis isn't so that you're gonna be biblically literate about Genesis. It isn't that you're going to be experts on all of the theological points in Genesis. That's not our goal. We're not trying to make you academically intelligent about Genesis. Instead, what we're doing is we're taking a look at this text. We're taking a look at this first book of the Bible that does this phenomenal thing where it introduces us to God, a holy, eternal, loving God who literally longs to have a relationship with a dysfunctional, broken humanity. And that story gets relayed over and over throughout Genesis of what man does and what God does in regard to that. And so Genesis 39 is just another one of those stories where we see see it played out of the brokenness of mankind and the, the, the role that God is playing in the middle of this. So as we do it, just know that it fits that entire thing we've been doing along the way. Now, also in Genesis 39, we have multiple lessons that can be drawn from this passage. So they could be taught multiple ways. Um, Right off the bat, without even having to look at the text, you can think through Joseph's life and recognize that just difficulty in life is, is a common story here. He literally at age 17 is thrown into a pit literally to murder him by his brothers. And then they decide not to kill him, but instead to, to sell him off. They sell him off. That tribe takes him off to Egypt and now he's exiled off to Egypt. And now he's sold into slavery to Potiphar's house. There is false accusations in Potiphar's house. And now he's thrown in prison. This is just a, a set of difficulties for Joseph's life that, that don't turn out well. And then you get the second concept of, of, well, let me finish this idea here with this whole thing that some people that teach about the difficulty of life with Joseph's story here, I literally read in some commentaries where they would bring in those platitudes of, if life gives you lemons, then you should make lemonade. And you're just thinking, yeah, I don't think that's really what this story is about at all. In fact, living here in Southern California for the last four years, the one thing I've learned is there are a lot of citrus trees. And if you have a lot of lemons, take a bag, write free on it and put it on the curb. That's what you do with lemons, right? In other words, let's not go too far into platitudes to just go, oh, tough it up and get through this. That's not the point of this story. And so we're not going to talk about that side of it. But there's also the sovereignty of God being played out in this story. We have this whole idea of what happens with Joseph and his role and it's already begun in previous chapters and it's gonna carry out for many more chapters in Genesis. So we're going to get this picture of how God uses Joseph in this moment. And then obviously right in the middle of this story is how to deal with temptation. That if you're facing temptation, Joseph is presented with it, does this passage teach us anything about how we deal with temptations when they come? The last one I think is probably the most obvious, and that is just the benefits of wearing loose-fitting clothing, that that can come in handy in all kinds of things. Anything from being like a rodeo clown or a hip-hop dancer just echoes that. So that, tr- that too is shown in uh, Genesis 39. Well, one of the things I want to do before we jump into the text is just remind you or encourage you not to just put a bow on it that typically what we do with a story like this is we stop and we look at Joseph's life and we see that his brothers tried to kill him. We see that his brothers sold him off. We see that he ends up in slavery. We see that he gets falsely accused. We see that he ends up in prison and all of these things happen because in the end that in prison, he's gonna interpret a dream and because he's interpreted that dream, he's then going to be brought up to Pharaoh to interpret Pharaoh's dream and then because Pharaoh sees him, he's gonna be put in charge second in command of all of Egypt. And then when there's a drought, he will have said, save all of this wheat so that we can survive the drought. Isn't this a really cool story? And this is a great thing and that Joseph had to go through all of this for this to happen. And that's just not true. So first off, the idea of putting a bow on it and going, oh, this is really happy that God was with him and all things worked out good. Know that bows are, literally are infrequent in life. And oftentimes there's years in between before they come. And for some people, they never see the bow come at all while they're still living. So for us to just feel happy that somehow there's a good thing on the end, it stops and leaves us a little hollow, wanting a bit more about what's really happening in this story. We're not looking just to put a bow on it. We're looking for the principles in the text. And at the same time, this this whole idea that it had to happen this way so that there would be wheat during a time of drought, you have to realize God is not tied, his hands are not tied that way. He doesn't need Joseph to get to Pharaoh just that way. He chose this path for Joseph. This wasn't a path that God could only do it one way. This is the same God who speaks to kings in dreams. This is the same God who flooded the earth during the time of Noah. This is the same God that in creation creates the whole universe and can put a ring around Saturn. He can do what he wants. He can do it any way he needs so then, the fact that it goes this way means that God picked up the pen and he wrote this story this way. The reason why that's important this morning as we jump into it is you need to know that God thought through this story, God thought through Joseph's life, God chose this path for Joseph that he would go through these difficulties. And that you in your life right now, whatever you're facing, recognize that God has the pen right now and he's writing your life. He's choosing this path. And the more beautiful idea about this is that God chose you. The fact that you're breathing right now, the fact that you're alive right now means that the God of the universe literally thought you up. He thought of your hair color, your eye color, well, at least your eye color. Some of you have different hair color now, but that idea that God is thinking about whether you would be male or female, he was thinking about the day you would be born and he knows the day that you will die. But your being alive right now is an idea God had and said, I'm writing them into the story and he chose you. This is a beautiful concept, so let's not pull the sovereignty of God out of it. Recognize that he's there, that he chose this path for Joseph, and what's going on in your life right now is a path God has chosen for you as well. It's with that concept that we jump into this story, when we start to take a look at it, that this is who we are. Now, one more thing as we do this is that There are sometimes uh, literary structures that you can find in scripture, and Genesis 39 is one of those that's a clear one. It's a picture where there's a pattern that repeats a couple of times, and it it helps to focus to a center part of the story. And so the way this plays out, if you've got your Bibles, open to Genesis 39, and we're going to start with verse 2, and it says, The Lord was with Joseph. And he became a successful man. Now, if you've got a pen or pencil or something like that, circle the word with or underline it, whatever way you can make a mark there. But it says the Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man and he was in the house of his Egyptian master and his master saw that the Lord was with. And again, circle that, underline it. This is the key words in this passage. So his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So the story begins with the Lord being with. And it says it both ways that the Lord was with Joseph and that even Potiphar could see that the Lord was with Joseph. Now jump to the tail end of the chapter. And in verse 21, it says, but the Lord was with Joseph. So now he's been falsely accused. He'd been thrown in prison. And yet here it repeats it. The Lord was with Joseph. And before we go into these two verses, I know that some of you are like, man, I don't want the Lord to be with me. Look at what happens every time the Lord's with him. But hang with us. But in verse 21, mark that the Lord was with circle that. The Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And in verse 23, the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So just to put a visual picture on this, we have this thing that at the beginning you have... Joseph, he comes in, there's bad things happening and as bad things happen, the Lord is with him and as the Lord is with him, good things happen and because good things happen because the Lord is with him, then... Somebody else sees it. Other people see and notice that God is with him. You saw that pattern play out in the beginning. And then when he's later on, he's thrown into prison. Bad things happen. The Lord is with him. Good things happen. And because good things are happening, then other people see that God is with Joseph. So you have the repeat of what happens at the beginning of the chapter happened at the end. It's the same pattern, bad things, God with him, good things. And then people see that God is with him. So those are the two patterns. And then right in the middle, we have this story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. And it may seem disconnected, but it's actually the pivot point to the whole story. You see, Joseph is there in that moment and he makes a remarkable uh, statement. He makes a remarkable decision in the middle of this tough temptation that's coming his way. He handles it with this this great, great passage. And this is where we look at it in verse uh, 9. Joseph is talking to Potiphar's wife as she's trying to come on to him and he's talking about Potiphar and he says, he Potiphar is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So these two sides that are about being with God and then Joseph stops and in the middle of this moment, he does something in his mind and he stops and he introduces God into that moment. A great thing anytime you're in a a situation of temptation is invite God into that moment. That's what Joseph does. He literally pivots on that point and says, this is it. Now, so that you know, it's a temptation to Joseph. Because it's like, all right, does it say that Joseph was tempted? Let's just put our, our thinking caps on here for a second. And if you look at the tail end of verse 6, it says, Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And so now you know that this is a tough thing. That, that people are really good looking. They are led into temptation because people, they, they think they're handsome. Most of us don't have to face that problem. You know, it's like... Never had that problem happen to me. It's not, you know, handsome and former appearance. But Joseph has this. But you also need to know when he's thrown in. And I'm sorry for some of you. You're like, hey, wait a minute. Speak for yourself. I was. But let's, let's get back to the passage, all right? Stop thinking about yourself. So Joseph is thrown into the pit at age 17. When his brothers try to kill him and they throw him in the pit, he is 17 years old. Roughly takes about a year for him to be sold into to the, the um, Ishmaelites and then moved to Egypt. And now he's put into Potiphar's house. So he is about 18 when he goes into Potiphar's house. We also know that at the tail end of his uh, of this story, that what happens is once he goes into the service of Pharaoh later on, he is 30 years old. He spent two years in prison. Scripture tells us that. And so at that point, we take two years away from 30, and he's 28 years old when he, when he basically um, goes into prison. So that means right now, he's somewhere between 18 and 28 when this story happens, closer to that, that late end. What do you know about young men, adolescent men, men that are 18 to 28? They're full of hormones that they are active, that that this is something that is a natural part of him. And you need to know about Joseph that he is lonely. He is in Egypt in exile. He is the Hebrew that has been sold into slavery that is there. People don't speak his language. He doesn't have anybody there that, that is like him and he is alone. And in that lonely setting, at his stage in life, up comes this woman. Potiphar is a wealthy man. He can have just about any woman he wants in all of Egypt. So you know that Potiphar's wife is attractive. And she's attractive, and he's lonely, and she comes up to him and makes this offer. And you know how that is, that sometimes when your life is going really rough, When you're having a really bad day, I don't know if you do this, but sometimes when I'm having a bad day, I make poor decisions in that moment that sometimes if it's been a really rough day and I'm just feeling down, I'm going to do something that just, just makes me happy. So I might say to Eugenie, we're going to go get fast food and we're just going to go to McDonald's and I'm going to get a Big Mac and I'm going to get chicken nuggets. And you know what? I deserve it today. I'm getting a milkshake just, am I the only one that does that? Just, you you go reward yourself because you think I've had such a tough day. I need something to make me feel good. Later on, you get what you deserve, but at the time it feels good. But that idea is a little bit weak. We wouldn't fault Joseph at that moment that if he's going, my life is so hard. I just need something to just make me happy. And at this moment this woman comes in and Joseph doesn't give in to it. Instead he stops and he acknowledges the presence of God in that moment and says, No, it doesn't work that way. In fact, what happens with with Potiphar's wife, she says that thing that in Proverbs 7, it talks about the strange woman. She's like a prostitute. She's she's out on the streets and the young man is walking the streets and he He bumps into her and she stops and says, oh, come with me. Come lie with me. My husband is away at work and we can lie together. Well, this is basically what Potiphar says. It says that the workers were out of the house and she would make sure the house was empty. And she is saying that same thing. My master is gone. Let's do this. And Joseph stops and says, my master is here. I can't. I want you to understand what he's doing in his mind. She's saying, my master is gone. Let's do this. And he says, no, my master is here right now and I cannot do this. This statement from Joseph is brilliant. It's the type of thing that we should hang on to with all of our life, throughout all of our life. That we would stop and say, how can I do this wicked thing and sin against God? We only say that if we acknowledge that God is right there with us. If we recognize his presence. Everything about the beginning of the story. And God was with Joseph. And then God was with Joseph. And this moment of temptation right in the middle of the story. Is Joseph reflecting on that and saying, I cannot do this for he is with me. I can't do this and sin against God. That principle shows up in scripture that God is with us and it's a reminder of Joseph that he is he is in there in this scenario thinking those very thoughts this doesn't show up just with Joseph by the way there are lots of saints in the in the Bible that have this phrase and God was with them so a list, and this isn't, an, this isn't exhaustive, but a list of, of passages where God is with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, with Job, with Moses, with Joshua, with Gideon, with Elijah, with Samuel, with David, with Solomon, with Daniel, with Mary, when she's um, about to give birth to Jesus, with Peter, when he's in prison, with Paul, with Silas, and oh yeah, with Jesus. With Jesus too, Jesus says, and God is with me. Apart from me, I can do nothing. That Jesus himself dwells on this same concept of God being with him. In fact, what I want to do is, uh, Literally look at this story, and just like we've looked at Joseph's, I want you to see the story with Jesus where he uses this same principle to address the temptations with him. And this is Matthew 4. So if you've got your Bibles, you can flip to Matthew 4. It's the story where Satan tempts Jesus. He tempts him three different times. There's three different temptations. We're going to look at the middle temptation, and this is a point where Satan takes Jesus, and they're in Israel, the, the country of God. They take him to Jerusalem, the city of God. And then Satan puts him on top of the temple, the house of God, and says to him, if you are the son of God, then go ahead and jump. And the angels who are the messengers of God will be able to catch you. That's the temptation. And that's literally how it lays out that on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against stone. In verse seven of Matthew four, Jesus says to him, to Satan in this temptation, but again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord, your God to the test. So he's answering it with this obscure text. He says to Satan in the middle of its temptation, it's written that you shall not put the Lord, your God to the test. And you were like, what does that mean that you can't put the Lord, your God to the test? Is that like what Gideon did when he laid out the fleece and the ground was wet and the fleece was dry or vice versa? that's not at all what it is. In fact, the, the part that he's quoting is out of Deuteronomy that tells the story of when Moses hit the rock and the water came out, but in their anger, the water was bitter. You remember that? And they were grumbling. All the Israelites were grumbling and complaining. That's Exodus 17. And if you flip to Exodus 17, it gives us a translation, literally the interpretation of what it means to put the, the Lord, your God to the test. So this is Jesus answering Satan in the middle of a temptation. This is the part that he quotes. And uh, verse 7, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel. And because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord here or not? That Jesus in that moment that he's tempted, he does the same thing. Don't say or uh, the, don't test the Lord. What that means is don't stop and think, is he here? Is God here in this moment? Instead, acknowledge his presence, recognize him as being here. This is what Jesus does in his moment of temptation as well. He acknowledges the presence of his father in the middle of this. And this part is the same thing that Joseph is doing when he says, my master is here, I can't. Now, this idea of what happens when we invite the the presence of somebody into a moment like that, especially God, is that it should change our behavior. And this is, we've talked about this before, about the morality of audience. Do you remember the God in the review mirror thing? This is like, we are all in Southern California. We drive the freeways. So we drive whatever's safe on the freeway. You know, we do this, uh, you know, highway speeds is what we call them. But what that means is there's a speed limit sign that says 55 miles an hour. How fast does that, that speed limit sign go by your car? And we we laugh at this because it's not 55, it's 65, 75, 80, maybe even 85 for some of you. That, That sign goes by and we make up time when we can. I'm not talking about the time when it goes by at five miles an hour. You know, let's forget those days. But when we have a chance, that speed limit sign, is just a suggestion, right? We don't pay attention to it. Until as we're flying down the freeway, we're doing 80 miles an hour, we look in the rearview mirror, and we see a hyper patrolman coming on the on-ramp onto the freeway behind us. Now, how fast are you driving? 55, right? You're figuring out how to slow down without putting your foot on the brake so that the lights show to him that you were the one that was speeding, right? Just me? Anyone else? We do this all the time. And then we notice that the eye patrolman puts on his blinker. He takes the off ramp. He goes on the overpass and then he heads back the other way. And as he's heading back the other way, how fast are you driving now? We're back to 75, 80, 85 miles an hour. Do you know what that tells me about you? Is that your morality is established by audience of who happens to be there at the time. It tells me that you're a disgusting people. <laughs> An immoral lot of you, unless God is with you. Do you understand that principle works with high patrolmen? It works with God. It's acknowledging the presence that God is not someday gonna come on the on-ramp. He is right in your rear view mirror right now. God is with you right now. Let me read you some verses that just lay this out. Um, It starts off in, we were talking about Genesis and in the very beginning, the first story of God and man is that God and man are supposed to be walking out in the garden, but Adam and Eve go over to the tree that they're not supposed to be at. There's only one tree in all of creation you can't eat at. Where do you find them? Right there. They're just like you. That's the way that goes. And then in this moment, it says God was out walking in the cool of the evening and they're not there. Presence and then lack of presence, no sin, sin. That's how it works. The very first story all the way to Revelation. And I love this. We're gonna go through these. You don't have to turn there. I'm just gonna read them. But Revelations 21 verse three. And it heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And then in Psalms 23, the 23rd Psalm, verse 4, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of the death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. And then in Psalms 139, verse 7, Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. And then in John 1.14, John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the word is Jesus himself. And, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And I love how Eugene Peterson translates this. And he says, and the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. That's such a beautiful thought that this is God himself coming to be with us. And then in John 14, Jesus is teaching the disciples one of the last big sermons he gives. And in verse 16, he says, and I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Is that not cool? That this God who recognizes our sin and dysfunction has moved towards us, who stays in our life. He is here. He is with us. And the challenge for us is to acknowledge his presence. The thing that Joseph did when God was with him, he acknowledged God was with him. And so even as she stops and says, hey, my master's gone, let's do this. That Joseph stops and says, my master is here and I can't that he deals with that temptation with the same thing about God's presence in the beginning and God's presence in the end. It's just a cool concept. Well, so what? Here's how it looks out in real life. I've told the story many times about my daughter uh, and her husband, Cody. And so I'm going to show you a couple of pictures and we're going to talk about something in their life, a part that I haven't shared yet, but this is a picture of Emily and Cody and, uh, Cody is, uh, at this point in time, he already has a brain tumor and the brain tumor actually sits right at the the base of his brain, at the brain stem. And the doctors realize they have to remove it. He's starting to have some complications from the tumor. And so they go in to remove it and in the process, he gets an infection inside the brain lining and it ends up killing him. So the next picture is a picture of Emily and she is at the funeral. And this is uh, Cody's fire chief. And you can see in his hands is an American flag that is being presented to my daughter because her husband has died. Emily had four children. That's her oldest, Willow, right there. She had four children and a fifth one on the way. She is pregnant in that picture with the baby to be born in about two weeks. Cody's dead. That story in of itself is a tragic story, but the next slide is what we wanna talk about this morning. The next slide is a post that Emily put up on Instagram and she wrote it on her 32nd birthday. And you can see that this is a letter from the Donor Alliance that handles organ and tissue donation. And she wrote this post because Cody donated some of his organs upon his death to someone else. And so with that, you've got the the stage set and this is what she wrote. I've had this letter taped in the back of my Bible for months, unopened and unread. It's a letter from a family that received something from Cody. I know it's supposed to make me feel good somehow. I know it's a beautiful thing that Cody gave. I know that someone was blessed and they want me to know. But I also know that in that envelope was the story of someone getting a chance we were never given, and I didn't want to read it until I could be happy for them. Well, today I read it on her 32nd birthday. I decided that if I had to be 32 without Cody, I was going to make it epic. So I made a list of 32 things that I will accomplish this year. Somewhere on that list, I promised that I would do 32 hard things that were good for me. And I am starting right here on a page where the thing I feared was actually written. A story of a husband, a father, a man who was given the opportunity to live an abundant life with his precious wife and their children. It talked about getting to teach his kids things and of family vacations. It talked about time and memories. It talked about life and hope. And with each word, it talked about what we lost so that they could have it. They don't know who they wrote to. They don't know he was mine. They don't know that he too was a dad. All they know is their half, a half that deserves to be told, but that only exists because of our half, and that breaks my heart. That story in and of itself is a rough one, but I want you to notice something. On her arm is a tattoo She got that too, after Cody passed away, while she was still in the storm, she went and got a tattoo that says it is well, if you know the hymn, the hymn goes on to say it is well with my soul. There's an incredible story about the writing of that hymn, but the part of this morning is this idea that my daughter in the middle of this story, the story that was so tragic She was recognizing that God had picked up a pen and began to write her life, began to write her story, began to write out the path that she must walk. And in that moment, our daughter acknowledged that God was there, that it is well with my soul, that God has me in the middle of this moment. I want you to see what God wrote next. The next slide, two weeks later, this little girl was born. And she named her Cody. And this is Cody at three years old. This is the kind of story God writes. And now three years later, after Cody's passing, the next slide, God has brought a godly man into our daughter's life. God is not done writing her story. And this is what our God is capable of. The God who puts a ring around Saturn is writing these stories for us. The point for us is to recognize that he is here with us right now. He is not done. One of the worst things we could do in the middle of this is to take the pen away from God and to try to write that story differently our way. That's the wrong thing to do. Instead, to surrender to God and say, God, I want to give you my story. I want you to write my story. Whether that's difficult, whether that's hard, know that this God is capable of doing the best of all things. In fact, I would tell you that we are only at our best when we live in his presence. You can't be any better unless you're in his presence. This concept for us is we think we can do good things. We can give it our best. Your best just isn't enough unless God is with you and what he does is so much better. That's the story of Joseph. That Joseph, even in slavery, Joseph, even in prison, God does incredible things through him because he is with him. And even in times of difficult temptation and everything else, It's that moment when we're being tempted that we need to invite God back in to that moment. My master is here and I cannot do these things and sin against God. Maybe, just maybe, we should live as if God is with us. And maybe, just maybe, we should live as if we are with God, that we literally are people of God and that that reflects out of us you see, things like Love Fullerton are, are beautiful days, but if it's just a bunch of people during a ser- doing a service project in a community, that's all it is. Last week, the elders got up here and they taught about one of our primary goals for this church is that Christ would be revealed to us and in us and by us. That the goal isn't that people would know more about Fullerton Free. The goal is that they would have, they would know more about Christ, that Christ would be revealed. But that concept in and of itself is that people are only going to know it's God when it's God at work and not men. People will only know that it's God when it's God at work and not men. If it's just you doing good things, they will see just you. But if you want to reveal Christ, then you have to be in the presence of God and have God walking with you. And we are at our best when we live in his presence. Last verse I want to close with is out of Matthew. And in Matthew 1 is another one of those tragic stories where uh, Joseph and Mary, different Joseph. This is the Joseph, the father of Jesus or the, the husband of Mary, but served his dad for Jesus. This Joseph has just found out that Mary is pregnant and he didn't have anything to do with it. So he's not exactly a happy camper, but God sends an angel to talk to him to say, Hey, don't worry about this. Cause I'm writing this story. So this angel comes and talks with Joseph to tell him about what's happening in this and we're going to look at it in verse 23. The angel says, behold, the, and he's literally quoting from a, a prophecy in earlier Old Testament. But in verse 23 of Matthew 1, the angel says to Joseph, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name, his name being Jesus. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Do you understand that Jesus himself is this principle? This whole idea of God with us isn't just a, oh yeah, I should practice that God is present with me. It's the idea that Jesus himself, his whole meaning is that God is with us. His name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. Let's pray. Lord, I... I thank you for this story of Joseph. I thank you for this young man that however he got the insight, the wisdom, his faith, the depth of who he was, to just lean into you and acknowledge your presence. That, Lord, that you would be speaking to each of us to do the same thing today. To recognize that you are here, that you are with us, and that we need to allow you to lead our lives. From the good things we do to the challenges we face, to the temptations that confront us, that Lord, ultimately, our only way through them is if you are writing the story. Lord, I just ask that today, you would remind us of your presence, and that we would feel it tangibly in our lives. We thank you for your love. We thank you for sending your son with us, that he would be with us. And we ask these things in your name, amen.